Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manesh. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today's no exception. We have a great guest. But first, a quick thank you to our sponsor. The Real Estate Espresso Podcast is brought to you by International Coffee Farms. International Coffee Farms grows and sells specialty coffee in Boquete, Panama. They now have 11 fully operational coffee farms and they are 100% sold out. They are accepting reservations for farm number 12. The idea of owning a safe, diversified offshore investment is intriguing to you. Check out International Coffee Farms at internationalcoffeefarms.com. That's internationalcoffeefarms.com. We are back here on the weekend edition. We have great guests this weekend, all the way from Southern California, from Alliance Strategic. Welcome, Eddie Lauren. Hey, thanks for having me. Eddie, let's take a minute, give a little bit of your backstory. How did you get into this world? Uh, You're working at a very high level, and I know we're going to talk today about one of the newest innovations that's coming out in the world of real estate investing, but maybe give us a little bit of your journey to how you got to here. Sure. I started at UCLA, um, came from uh, pretty much an orphan background. I had a mother who raised four boys alone without my father, and you know, then uh, she died when I went off to UCLA, so I was kind of on my own and developed a keen interest in affordable and workforce housing because I always had a life of love, but not a life that was very rich with cash. So I wanted to make a lot of money, of course, because that was my drive, being poor. And also I wanted to make sure I made a difference in the world by impact investing and taking blight and making light. So my focus has always been on workforce and kind of dilapidated, neglected real estate and transforming them into thriving communities. So I've had a career, done over 40,000 units in my day, either for myself or for others. And it's just about a value add and giving people this clean, safe, affordable place to live, treat them with respect and dignity. They stay, they pay, they refer their friends. It's a very boring, methodical business, but it gives me a lot of pleasure and a lot of reward. I love that. You know, it's funny. I lost my mother when I was a teenager as well. And while it was a devastating loss, it forced me to grow up very quickly. And it's amazing how people can respond to situations differently. There's certainly post-traumatic stress and Mm. all of those things that can happen, but there can also be post-traumatic growth as well. And you never know which it's going to be. It sounds like you ended up on the post-traumatic growth side of it. Well, I'd probably both. (laughs) Well, <laughs> honestly, we all we all have our demons that we deal with from our past, and of course, the question is, can you rise above it and adjust the sails to the wind, or you're going to let the wind knock you over? Exactly. So, fast forward to today, you've done been involved in close to forty thousand units. What's your focus today? I know one of the has been tremendous amount of changes to the tax code, uh, opportunity zones are one of the things that I know you're focused on. What's the play there? Well, I've been involved in, like I said, workforce and rehab housing, and I found out that this legislation is really not promoting rehab because there's 100% of your basis that has to be spent on the building. So it pretty much makes it difficult to do anything but new construction or old empty buildings. So in terms of the typical value add, so I got really involved in what's called EIG.org, which is Sean Parker's nonprofit that is the authors of this, along with uh, Booker and Scott on the Senate level. So that was my impetus to get involved. And then I joined Novogratic, which is an accounting firm. And it was all to figure out, is there a way that we can change this law and be able to make it 
so that we could rehab existing properties. But it seems like without a new Congress, which we know that's not happening, change, uh, it's not going to really happen. So, you know, again, you adjust your sales, and I still think it's a phenomenal opportunity, no pun intended. Look, there were three states in the country that got 80% of the venture capital in the last 100 years, and that's California, Massachusetts, and New York. Well, now there are 8,700 low-income census districts that are, are available for people to take their gains and reinvest in these communities. And we hope that across the country, it levels the playing field a bit. So it's an exciting part of the legislation. I'm very much looking forward to making a difference. And so I've teamed up with one of the largest low-income housing tax credit syndicators. You know, there's been 3 million units built under that code. And so this is similar. You've got tax incentives, but now for individuals, not just for corporations and banks, to invest in these distressed communities. So the concept is to be able to provide equity to these developers who are going to build workforce housing without all the red tape and tax credits, etc. So it's really an opportunity for people to have another arrow in their quiver instead of just developing LIHTC low-income housing tax credit property. So my goal is to still keep the impact of it all. I want to try to integrate low-income housing into these workforce units so that we aren't displacing people. And in fact, we are trying to make sure we mix the incomes and keep things rolling so that we don't just take areas that truly were uh, underprivileged and then end up pushing everybody out. So that's counterproductive. And that's not what the intent of the law was. But, you know, it's challenging. It's been a year since the regs came out and we're still working with Treasury to try to figure out how we can finalize this so everybody feels comfortable to go in and form funds and make these investments. Well, you've used the term workforce housing, so just to make sure there's no listener left behind, what's the distinction of workforce housing versus affordable versus very affordable versus some of these different classifications? How does that break down? Okay, let's go through the primer. Very low income is 30% of area median income. So area median income differs by county, by region. So all of affordable housing is tagged to what is the area median income, the average person, what do they make, and they shouldn't pay more than a certain percentage of that in order to qualify. So 30% of area median income, let's say there's $50,000 in the area median income, 30% of that would be 15,000. So people can't make more than 15,000 on the low end. This is very low income. And then low income ranges all the way up to 80% of area median income. The same 50,000 median income, now 80% is $40,000. Nobody can make more than that in order to occupy these spaces. But there's a middle class that's getting lost, as we know. So we categorize that as 80 to 120% of area median income. And we call that the lost middle. And that is workforce housing as I define it, and as most people define it. So, you know, there's a range where there's a lot of subsidies for that who, and those who make less than 80%, but there's really nothing out there for the middle. So, you know, that's the firemen that teachers, the, all the people that are really white collar, but, you know, not making executive level pay. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you for that. One of the things that we often talk about when we talk about the tax code, people think about the, the tax legislation as just ways for a government to extract more money out of the population. And I like one of the terms that you used a moment ago, 
you talked about a series of incentives. Another way to look at the tax code is as a hint from government telling people where to invest. Here are some incentives. So please go focus on this area over here. It sounds like you you align with that point of view. Well, look, I, I, I'm as left as, as anybody, but you know we all are in business and we're here to make money and we're proud to be capitalists. The problem in capitalism is you have winners and losers. If we don't take care of the losers, we're all going to have anarchy. And that's why it's so important that people realize, you know, not everybody can be that successful. And there are plenty of hardworking people with two jobs who can barely pay to live. And if they have to live really far away, and so if they're paying over 50% of their income on rent, we have to take care of those people. That's why there are government subsidies. That's why we need property taxes abatement. We need to have an opportunity where people can actually come in and work together and get some leg up because not everybody has the fortune that we've had or has the gumption. You know, people give up, people get discouraged. There's all kinds. We're not all the same, but we have to care about our own society. So everybody has a fair shake and some people have to be taken care of. Yes. There's no crime in that. See that that's, that's where I'm, I get frustrated, you know, with people complaining. It's like not everybody's so lucky. Well, that's right. In fact, you know, you don't even see that necessarily across social strata. You often see that in a single family. Three, four children born out of the same household, out of the same environment, can respond to it very differently. One person with a tremendous amount of drive and ambition and another person respond to it completely differently. And that can happen out of the same household. And, you know, we take care of our brothers and sisters. Well, I mean, look at the homeless situation. I'm in Los Angeles and I'm going tomorrow to a homeless uh, initiative because, you know, it's the right thing and we want to all help solve the problem. But a lot of people are mentally ill and uh, the funding has been cut. So you want to just cast them aside? So I always joke about, you know, the concept of impact investing. It's all exciting. All these big institutions want to invest in solar in Botswana. Well, great that's all fine and we can save the carbon footprint in Botswana, but what about people who don't even have a roof over their heads in our home and our backyard? Absolutely. Absolutely. So back to opportunity zones. So putting together a fund, maybe for the listeners who aren't familiar with opportunity zones, maybe break that down a little bit and explain what, how that works. What, what's the process? If someone wants to participate, how do they do so? Great. So there used there, there is the 1031 exchange. I'm sure all your listeners or most are aware of that. You can take gains from real estate and put it back into new real estate tax deferred. So that's a really great concept, but it always had to be what was called like kind. Well, now this new legislation that came out of the 2017 act allows any gain, any capital gain. So you can sell your stock. You can sell your, your business. If you sold your business, $10 million dollars, you can defer that gain into real estate or into other businesses. So this Opportunity Zone legislation is not just about real estate. It's also about new businesses. So if you wanted to open up a, a chicken joint or a liquor store in one of these areas that, and, and you can check this out on novagratic.com or you can go to eig.org, these legislative areas are called Opportunity Zones were picked by every governor of each state. So the point is that It was more localized, which was really a brilliant concept. For every single area, 25% of the low-income census tracts were chosen for these 
opportunity zone places. So people are familiar with New York, some of the boroughs, including the Amazon, that's the big hoo-ha-ha. Now everybody's Long upset. Island City, yeah. Right? But the problem is that Amazon won't benefit from that. The other people will benefit. The developers who go in and invest in the in the properties underneath that. So it's nothing, you know, shady from an Amazon point of view there, unless he takes his personal stock. So theoretically, let's take that example. If Bezos took a hundred million dollars worth of stock and sold it, he could invest in real estate underneath his properties and rent to himself. But I don't think that's his intent, but that's the theory. So the average person sells their Apple stock and they have a, let's say a million dollar gain. They can put it into an opportunity zone fund and that opportunity zone fund would invest in all the areas that are designated as opportunity zones. And it can be, like I said, a business. You can invest in real estate. And it's really a great way to kind of take $6 trillion of gains that are locked up and put them to work in other communities. So that's the essence. And the way the legislation works is if you invest that million dollar gain, for instance, you can avoid taxes on that gain until 2026, at which time in 2026, you can get a step up in your basis, a little discount of five or 10%. So now you're only paying taxes, let's say on 850,000 and that tax is due in 2026. And that's great. But the real kicker is if you hold that same investment for 10 years, so let's say we invest in 19, you sell it in 2029 and that million becomes worth 2 million, that gain, the extra million has no tax associated with it. It's tax-free. It's brilliant. It's amazing. It's awesome, but it could be fraught with a lot of problems if uh, not carefully watched over. So, you know, that's why the great minds of the country are being very cautious before these funds are being formed and before investments are being made. But it's really exciting for someone to be able to take those gains I mean, short of uh, dying and having a step up in basis, it's really a tremendous way to unlock these gains. So people can get involved by just declaring their gain and they have 180 days from the time they took their gain to invest in an opportunity zone fund opportunity. So I hope that was clear. It, it is clear. And you know, I've taken some time, I've actually gone to the opportunity zone map. And like you said, they're all over the country. And, you know, you can't just drive down the street and say, oh, I'm in an opportunity zone, although you might be, because, you know, every city in America has that hot gentrified neighborhood and, uh, you know, you go two blocks too far and you're in the hood. And that could be an opportunity zone, but you have to go to the map and see exactly which zip codes. It's drawn out very clearly on the map which where you are or are not in an opportunity zone. If you are, it's exactly like you said, you could potentially have a tremendous sheltering of capital gains if you decide to invest. Now, are there any restrictions uh, in terms of does the investor need to be on title? Can they be a shareholder in the entity? Yeah. Uh, what, what types of restrictions are there? Well, no sin businesses, by the way, and no golf courses. That's one thing. But okay. uh, no, they, they, you will be a, a partner in a fund. So it's very clear that you, you can self-proclaim your own fund if you wanted to buy a prop, piece of property yourself. So let's say you wanted to develop something down the street, you could take your million dollars and you could self-certify and say, I am an opportunity zone fund. But the point is you mean to invest in a fund. So um, that's, that's a partnership interest or shares in a fund, not direct title. So the fund would hold title 
to the business or the property. Fascinating. And so what are, what are the objectives for the fund that you're putting together in terms of the size of the fund? Uh, what kind of investment are you looking to attract? Is this going to be strictly for accredited investors? Or is it open to all comers? How's that work? Well, it's definitely going to be for accredited investors. And most likely anybody with a gain that's significant enough is going to be accredited. Um, probably not for the accredited investor per se, because, you know, and we're targeting a $200 million fund and we already have 150 million of projects that are designated already for that capital. But we've been in through a year of uncertainty, lack of regs, and just recently the IRS has come through with some good enough guidance that any prudent person could be forming a fund now. We were waiting until we had enough of a green light and we feel it's enough, but there's still more to come. As uh, one of the lawyers on a panel yesterday with me said that from DLA, he said, this, this law was unfortunately written by fifth graders and it's even more difficult a fourth grader uh, to interpret it. So we're really trying to make sure that as, as fiduciaries, as advisors, that we make sure that we can keep these investments that will certify and that, that will not have a recapture. So the good news about Alliant in our past is we've got about $7 billion of institutional money under management and we've never had anybody have a recapture. So the two things that really matter here is one, do you invest directly in the purple? And when you go online, you'll see that it's purple on the opportunity zone map. And number two, have you self-certified and are you keeping with the regulations or you could have a huge recapture event. So you got a lot of people forming funds, a lot of people excited and that's all great. But if you're going to think about investing with someone, make sure that they really know what they're doing and they can deploy it. One of the famous guys in the market said he's raising a $3 billion fund. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's absurd because you have six months to invest the money and you have 31 months to make sure it's all spent. I'd be hard pressed to think that he's, if he doesn't, if he raises $3 billion. Can he deploy it? Can he deploy it? And if he doesn't, you're going to have a huge recapture event. So I worry about potential fraud and bad players in this business because the IRS has made it so loose that you can self-certify. But nonetheless, it's not my problem. I'll stick to our knitting and we're going to do some really good deals because it's never good to make a tax-driven investment unless the underlying real estate or business works. Exactly. What's interesting is, you know, I'm, I'm in the real estate business, but some people on the coalition went into Treasury and we had a big meeting and he says, wait a minute, you want me to invest in venture capital. So right now, venture capital, I invest in 10 businesses, one's a home run, two are okay, and the rest I lose. So you want me to do the same business, invest in these distressed areas, which is great, and you're going to tell me I have to hold it for 10 years? What if my window to, to sell this business is in two? Because if you're telling me I have to hold, hold it for 10 and miss my window, I'm out. So we're working on, just to give you an idea, guidance to say, okay, if we have a liquidity event and we sell in year two or year three, as long as we reinvest back into the zones, then we can maintain that safe harbor for the 10-year hold to get that treatment. So there's a lot of stuff swirling, a lot of complications. So it's not bad to be waiting, which we have been, but it's getting to be the time where it's time to start investing. I love that. Well, Eddie, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, I'm at E-Lorin, E-L-O-R-I-N, at strategic 
R-H, S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-C-R-H for realtyholdings.com. Or um, my phone number is 818-737-8000 here in Southern California. I love it. Eddie, it's been a great education. Thank you so much. And for the listeners at home, definitely check out Eddie at strategicrh.com and have a great rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. 